Now with a louder thunderous of applause, will you give the Lord a great big round of applause? This is the day the Lord has made. We will rejoice. What about up there in the balcony? Will you rejoice with me today and be glad in it? Frustrated, but I will rejoice. Been through some stuff, but I will rejoice. Cast down, but not destroyed. I will rejoice. Yes, 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 yes. I will rejoice because the Lord is good and worthy to be praised. Hallelujah in this place. I tell you, I feel a little bit of churchy up in here. <laughs> my, my, my. Well, I praise the Lord for being here today, and I appreciate uh, any university that maintains the Pentecostal spirituality. Because uh, it's the spirit that quickens and makes us alive. And the integration of spirituality and learning prepares us to bear witness in the public square in ways that others may not be able to do that. It's the new witness. How do I enter into the variety of fields of work and uh, infiltrate, permeate the, the, the darkness of the world with the light of Jesus Christ? If there's ever been a time we need this witness, it is now. Praise the Lord. So I'd like to thank God for President Scott Hagen and his wife, Ms. Hagen. Can you give them a great big round of applause? <laughs> extraordinary president with extraordinary vision to do extraordinary things, not only here in Minneapolis, but in the nation and around the world, and with such a pleasure, such a pleasure to spend time with him. Doug Graham, thank you very much for uh, your hospitality, and to my good friend, Dr. Renee Brathwaite and his wife, Joy Brathwaite, give them a round of applause. We've been friends for many years. His wife was a uh, vice president, uh, or the uh, vice um, dean, associate assistant dean, of the School of Divinity when I went to Regent University uh, as a faculty member and, uh, and Dr. Brethwaite at the time was working on his PhD there and he was on my search committee. So they vetted me very well. <laughs> and for 10 years we've been friends, so it's been wonderful. I want to acknowledge Reggie Dabbs. It's very nice to be in your midst. Thank you. Now I got that over, let us pray. Father, I pray that you stand up in me. I pray, Lord, that this be a time and a space that you use me to your glory. Speak to us. We're listening, Holy Spirit. Sanctify these moments. Consecrate our ears of clay. Consecrate my lips of clay, that the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O God. In Jesus' name, amen. Will you turn your Bibles quickly to Acts chapter number 3, verses 1 through 8. We'll go 1 through 8. And I'm reading from the ESV. When Peter and John, Peter and John, were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour, and a man lame from birth was being carried, 
whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called the beautiful gate to ask alms of those entering the temple. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. And Peter directed his gaze at him as did John and said, look at us. Repeat after me, look at us. And he fixed his attention on him, on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver and I have no gold, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up. And immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. Spirit of the living God, fall fresh on us today. For a few minutes, I want to speak to you from the subject, the ninth hour. The ninth hour. The ninth hour is about empowerment, spirit empowerment. Spirit emanation and spirit exaltation. Repeat after me. Spirit empowerment. Spirit emanation. Spirit exaltation. The spirit of Pentecost empowers responsibility, emanates revelation, and exalts the name of Jesus. If there were ever a time we need Pentecostal power, that time is now. We don't just need it in the church, but we also need it in society, in the world. There are many reasons to be concerned. The mayhem and decadence are the order of our day. If you've been watching the news, you don't have to flip long or pick up your cell phone, but for a second and see another mass shooting again only a day or so ago on the West Coast. Last Saturday, I had the privilege of standing on Saturday in a conservative Jewish synagogue where they asked me to give some words of reflection and consolation for the Jewish community that had just uh, experienced the mass shooting in Pittsburgh. So this was in Norfolk, Virginia. I said to the Lord, I said, now if I'm going to go up in there, I, I can't take the name of Jesus out of what I'm going to say. So I, I, I put my sermon together and I preached from Isaiah chapter number six. The year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. He was high and lifted up and his train filled the temple. And uh, I preached from the subject, can anything good come out of this? And somewhere in the sermon I said, Jesus taught his followers to love. And then I acknowledged the many years that Christians in the name of Jesus had sponsored a lot of the atrocity and tragedy around the world, whether it was South African apartheid, the Holocaust, or whether it was slavery in America. And uh, so I acknowledged that I understand why Jews are resistant to the idea of mentioning the name of Jesus. And after the sermon, I was in the area where they ate, and person after person came up to me and said, you know, I've always had a wall when people say that name, you know, Jesus. And, and, and I bet that name has never been mentioned in this synagogue. But one lady in particular said, but I see Jesus differently. She said, you have changed my perspective 
about Jesus. Somebody say Jesus. <laughs> Boy, I can preach on that right now. Demons flee at the name of Jesus. I grew up in a sanctified church where we cast out devils in the name of Jesus. I've seen, I've seen the dead raised in the name of Jesus. I, I lifted a woman out of the bed who had been in bed for two weeks, two months, uh, and couldn't walk. And I said, in the name of Jesus, the woman got up and walked. I've laid hands on people. I didn't believe. I grew up in a Pentecostal church, but I didn't believe in falling out. I said, it really don't take all of that. You know, these people just playing. So one day I needed a prayer and I went in the prayer line and I closed my eyes and my dad, who was our pastor, laid his hands on my head and I fell out. And then when I got up, I said, he pushed me down. They said, he didn't even touch you. I said, so there's power in the name of Jesus. Sisters and brothers, uh, uh, things are so difficult today uh, that um, we're not even sure what is real and what is fake news. Classism, racism, sexism, xenophobia have camouflaged the culture. Anger and violence are the new norm. The integrity of leadership is challenged even in the high places. Global superpowers are flexing their muscles, igniting fear of another world war. From the White House to the outhouse, from Wall Street to Front Street, there's a cry for help. The oppressors and the oppressed are, victim, are victimized in different ways. National Alliance to End Homelessness reports there, an, there is an estimate 553,000 people in the United States experiencing homelessness on a given night, according to the most recent national point-in-time estimate there, this represents a rate of approximately 17 people experiencing homelessness per every 10,000 people in the general population. National Coalition Against Domestic Violence reports on average nearly 20 people per minute are physically abused by an intimate partner in the United States. During one year, this equates to more than 10 million women and men. One in three women and one in four men have been victims of physical violence by an intimate partner within their lifetime. One in five women and one in 71 men in the United States has been raped in their lifetime. Almost half of female and male uh, victims are raped in the United States were raped by an acquaintance. Of these, 45.4% of female rapes victims and 29% of male rape victims were raped by an intimate partner. The economic impact is that victims of intimate partner violence lose a total of about 8.8 million days of paid work each year. The cost of intimate partner violence exceeds $8.3 billion per year. Between 21 and 60% of victims of intimate uh, partner violence lose their job due to reasons stemming from the abuse. The FBI reports some 30, watch this, 33,000 violent street gangs, motorcycle gangs, and prison gangs with about 1.4 million members who are criminally active in the United States and Puerto Rico today alone. Society has adjusted to this negativity. Even the religious among us are anesthetized by the social depravity, 
moral bankruptcy and existential nihilism that plague our cities. God forbid we join the priest and the Levite in Luke chapter number 10, who, according to Jesus' story, ignored the black, the gay, the gang member, the high school dropout. Are you following me? The man on the road to Jericho who was stripped, beaten, and left half dead. From the four corners of the globe, sisters and brothers, there is a deep longing for help and for hope. At the inception of Jesus' ministry, in Luke chapter uh, number four, Christology and pneumatology kissed each other. Jesus drew from the prophetic tradition to announce the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He said, oh God, I feel the Holy Ghost. He has sent me to proclaim freedom to the prisoners and recovery of sight to the blind. To set the oppressed free. Yes, set the oppressed, can you imagine the oppressed being set free to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor? The Reverend Dr. James Cone points out that God is known where human beings experience humiliation and suffering. Liberation is not an afterthought, but the very essence of divine activity. Jesus declares that the Holy Spirit is divine revelation to bring message of hope and so to, to socially depraved humanity. That's true. Redemption. That's true redemption for people who are in desperate need of help and hope. Can the, I want to say, can the church say amen? That's the beginning of opening of eyes. That's the fulfillment of existential wholeness. Sisters and brothers, students at North Central University. If we are to see people transform, God has a plan. We're living in a society that's looking for solutions. Christianity Today, the editor of Christianity Today, I was at a conference where he said to me, listen, can you guys stop writing about the problems? Because my readers all are on board with the problems. He said, can you give me some solutions? The world is in need of a solution. That's my critique of liberation theology. It deconstructs and it tells us all the problems in the world. But once you finish reading, you're like, so what? Where's the transformation? Where's the new way? Where is the way out of darkness? Sisters and brothers, the spirit makes a difference. In Acts chapter 1, verse number 8 promises that when the Holy Spirit comes upon God's people, we bear witness to the mission of Jesus' ministry. In Acts chapter 2, it offers a descriptive account of what, is, uh, what, was, uh, what it was like for believers when they first were baptized in the Spirit. And when the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all in, on one accord in one place. You know that one, right? There appeared into them cloven tongues like of the fire and it set upon them. And they were all filled with the Holy Ghost and began to speak in tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Sisters and brothers, this mysterium tremendum was something that set the course of the new church that was created on the day of Pentecost. What in the world? Why in the world? They wanted to know what this all means, sisters and brothers. But oh, if I can hasten to that passage today. Chapter number two is where the spirit descended upon the church. 
But chapter number three shows us what happens when the spirit-filled church moves beyond the walls of the upper room. Oh, God. Acts 2 happened at the third hour of the day. In chapter 2, verse number 15, it says, they're not drunk as you suppose because it's the, come on, somebody, third hour of the day. But Acts chapter number 3 happens at the Ninth hour of the day. In Scripture, three represents the hope of Jesus' resurrection, divine protection, and the coming of the Holy Spirit. The number three represents the fullness of the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. No wonder Luke says that the Spirit was poured out uh, when the day of Pentecost was fully come because it was the third hour of the day. But sisters and brothers, the number nine in biblical numerology comes after the number eight. Eight is the number of new beginnings. It is the number of excitement, great anticipation, and expectation. But the number nine symbolizes, somebody say nine, symbolizes rhythm and development. Whoo, touch your neighbor and tell him rhythm and development. Number nine is concerned more about outcomes and impact than experience. No wonder Luke is careful to say that Peter and John were going to prayer at the ninth hour of the day. Memories of the third hour of day were in their head. No doubt Peter was so excited. 3,000 people joined the church that day. President Hagen, wouldn't that be a good idea if we had a revival where 3,000 people joined the church? So you got to imagine that Peter must have been just overwhelmed that 3,000 people had joined the church that day. Precious memories, but now it's time to get back to life as they knew it. Religiosity demands that those who truly love the Lord must get down to the temple to pray. Go down to the temple to pray. Religiosity said go down to the temple to pray. But sisters and brothers, let's look closer at chapter 3. There is a problem. Peter and John's Pentecostal experience had altered the way they saw the world. Ordinary situations no longer looked ordinary to them. Systems that once pacified the poor and invested in poverty were no longer acceptable. These men saw something they had always seen, but this time they could not walk past the man who was in need. They had already been down to the hour of prayer. This was not new, and they'd already known what to do in a collectivist society. You tend to the people who are in need. Uh, The man had a physiological challenge. And he had an economic weakness. He, present, he represents a population of people who the world deems a social liability rather than a social asset. Can I preach this today? Even worse, religion offered no hope for this population. They were satisfied with the us and them mentality. They were blessed and they were not. We were heading to prayer and they can't go. We know the Lord and they don't. Give them a little money and it's the noble thing to do. That is why Reinhold Niebuhr wrote the book uh, Moral Man in Moral Society. He said that moral uh, uh, 
uh, human beings in an immoral society. We can adjust, we can cope, we can get along, we can get involved with the rhythm of the day. They march to the beat of privilege at the expense of the underprivileged. They're right in their own eyes, says the proverb writer, but here is a person with unfulfilled dreams. This man, he could sit at the gate called beautiful, but he couldn't go into the temple to behold the beauty and to inquire in the temple. Reminds me of the American dream. We say that America, the beautiful, there are people in the place called beautiful, but can't move over the threshold to engage the beauty that the country claims that it offers to everyone. So they are like this man at the gate. Somebody say, just sitting at the gate. They in the homeless shelter just sitting at the gate. They've been raped and molested and don't want to tell anybody. But they just sitting at the gate. I was a chaplain in, in the prisons and I walked from one cell to the next and I saw men and women who were just sitting at the gate. I've counseled uh, the Latin king, people from the Latin kings and from MS-13 and from the Bloods and the Crypt. And as I sit there and talk to them and I, and I recognize that outside of the prison, people are afraid of them. And I'm sitting there, a little country boy from the Clay Hills of Georgia, and I'm thinking to myself, why are they crying as I'm talking to them? Because these are men who are just like you and me, women just like you and me, but they are sitting. God, I feel like preaching. They're sitting at the gate. Somebody say sitting at the gate. A human being overlooked, kicked aside, and looked up, down upon. A human being who was marked because of how he was born. A human being who could not go into the temple to behold the beauty of the Lord. So he was satisfied with just sitting at the gate. There was an invisible fence, my sisters and brothers. Uh, they, there are people who are labeled at risk uh, with no hope for becoming at promised. They are locked away in prisons, out of sight, out of mind. When we ask how they are doing, they say, I'm doing fine. Then they go and, and live on park benches, sex trafficked, abused, opioid addicted, raped, pain, loneliness, and living in fear. They are at the gate. Somebody say, at the gate. Not long ago, I got a call from the Attorney General of, of uh, Office of, uh, of Virginia Beach, uh, of, of Hampton Roads, said he wanted to meet with me. He, when he walked in the office, he came in with the FBI agent and an, a DEA agent. They sat down at my, at my conference desk and they said, we need your help. We did some research and we found out uh, that we need to contact you. They said that we have a working group on the opioid problem and uh, we have lawyers and we have doctors and we have the DEA and the FBI. And as we looked at each other, we said, but we don't have the faith community. And we said among ourselves, how can we engage the faith community? And they asked somebody and they said, you need to contact Antipas Harris. And, and so he contacted me and sat at the table. I said, this is what we'll do. We'll have a, a clergy summit on the opioid problem so we can mobilize the faith community to get involved with the opioid crisis. He said to me, he said, we, we, we're tired of locking up, uh, throwing people in jail all the time. We want want to see how we can help people so that they won't end up in this situation in the first place. Somebody say, sit it at the gate. 
They're at the gate wishing somebody would pay attention and have mercy. Peter and John represent the blood-washed, spirit-filled church that can no longer accept status quo. Apathy is no longer an option, and passing by a need to go pray violates the essence of their Pentecostal experience. Peter and John gazed at the man. They gazed at the man. You see it in your text. They gazed at the man. And I have a question for you today, sisters and brothers. Who are you looking at? What are Oh, who are you looking at? Not what, but who? Not what, but who? Are you paying attention to the blight of the poor? The situation of the undocumented? The economic, the education problem in our community? The economic crisis? Are you considering these things as you're studying to prepare yourself for your life to put to, uh, in public witness to Christ? The gift of discernment rested upon Peter and John. They did not look down at the man. They looked at him. I want you in your mind, just look at him. Look at him, sex trafficked, raped, opioid addicted, ah, living on the edge, homeless, downtrodden, born in the ghetto, the barrio, uh, in the trailer park, somewhere where other people would look down on them. We are not looking down on them. They looked at the man. Peter and John looked past the man's social situation. They had the insight that this man was asking for what he thought he can get. He was not really asking for what he wanted. Give me, because he thought he can get that. He never imagined that he could actually get up. They saw a man whose humanity was inextricably bound up in theirs. They saw a man who wanted to be free. Pentecostal ethicist uh, Leonard Lovett says that, the, that Pentecost is the dogmatic insistence that liberation is always the consequence of the presence of the Spirit. Authentic liberation can never occur apart from genuine Pentecostal encounter. The authentic Pentecostal encounter can never happen apart from, genu uh, from um, genuine liberation. Could it be, sisters and brothers, students at North Central University, could it be that religion as usual has turned away from justice and righteousness? Could it be that religion today has bootstrapped too closely to political polarities and its soul, its soul to the filthy lucre of the world? Could it be that religion is looking at what it can get more than what it can give? When we pay attention, they will respond to us. They looked at the man. I came to North Central University to announce that now is the time. It is the ninth hour. We must not be stopped with the third hour. The ninth hour is here. In the ninth hour, the Spirit empowers uh, the responsibility of those who are listening to the silent voices of the marginalized. In the ninth hour, responsibility of mercy for those who are on the road of despair. Responsibility of extending a hand rather than a hand out. They want a hand up, not a hand out. 
I want to encourage us that as we think about humanitarian efforts, let us know that we don't stop with the urgency of now, but rather have a deeper insight to understand that people really don't want to hand out. They want to be fully human just like you. They want to pull up themselves by their own bootstrap, but they don't have boots to pull up. So if we can give them a hand, somebody say up. Peter and John said, look at us. Ah, he looked at them expecting to receive something. But when Peter and John said, silver and gold, we don't have. But one thing we got at the third hour, oh, that the world can't give and the world can't take away. Touch your neighbor and tell them the world can't give it. And the world can't take it away. They said, in the name of Jesus... In the name of Jesus, demons flee at the name of Jesus. Oh, Jesus. Somebody say, Jesus. I got saved one day calling on the name of Jesus. Somebody say, Jesus. Cry, Jesus. In the name of Jesus. Get up and walk and watch this, watch this. The man didn't get up and walk and run the other way. The man got up and ran in the direction that he's always wanted to go. There are people who want to be in the presence of God. We have judged them as, as if they don't want to. But I have, I have been in the barrios. I've been in the ghettos. I, I have counseled homeless men. I had ministry that, that I carried when I went around and preached. I'm uh, uh, president. I would have guys with me with um, borrowed suits. And I would, I would say this. These are my assistants today. Nobody knew that I picked them all up from the homeless shelter. This is the way I'm going to close. One of the men who who went around with me as a homeless man came to one of my meetings, received Christ. I took him to the beach in Norfolk and baptized him. That man had nothing, and he had a degree. He was an executive chef who couldn't throw alcoholism. Landed in homelessness, came to faith at one of our meetings, baptized him. Long story short, not too long ago, that same homeless man called me in the middle of the night. Now, God saved him, but he was working on his mouth. So he said to me, Pastor Antipas, God is so effing good. I said, what? Oh, excuse me, Reverend. I didn't mean to say that, Reverend. I didn't mean to say that. I said, it's okay. It's okay. What, what, what's the deal? He said, man, I got the hookup in Hawaii where I've been offered $425,000 a year to run seven restaurants. Everybody's standing. I just got back from Hong Kong. I visited the St. Stephen's Society with a group of doctoral students from Portland Seminary. St. Stephen's Society was founded by Jackie Pullinger from England, who went there to help the downtrodden. They wanted her not to go to the side of town that she set up camp because there were prostitutes, drug addicts. There were all kinds of things going over there. But she said, no, this is where God wants me to help people, give them a hand up. I was at worship on a Wednesday morning, and I can't tell you how much I cried that morning. I turned my back. I said, they can't see me crying. When those men were speaking in tongues and giving interpretation of tongues, calling out members of my doctoral cohort, saying that there's someone among you with a knee problem and you had it and they were giving details, 
God wants to heal you today. I said, we're supposed to be doing this. <laughs> Here's a guy who's been on drugs and God had changed his life, laid hands on the man, and the guy at the end of our time there got up and testified, I got healed. The doctoral student got healed by the ex-drug addict who probably never been to college. Because that's what God is infusing into you along with your education. A power to give people a hand up. Repeat after me. It is the ninth hour. Now, if you believe that, I want you to bum rush the stage. We're going to pray in closing. Come on down here. If you believe, if you've been touched by the word of the Lord that this is your season, this is your day. Your day is not tomorrow. It is today. God is stirring up something in your spirit that whatever you're studying right now, God says that I want to use you to give people a hand up. This is not the third hour, but the ninth hour. The day of new rhythm, new beginning. Look what you, what are you looking at? What are you looking at? What are you about to transform? Who you're about to lay hands on and lift them up and they're going to run into the temple to behold the beauty of the Lord, to inquire in his temple. We don't pass out tracks anymore. They don't really work. But if you go out there and help somebody, they'll come running behind you. Sisters and brothers, in Jesus' name, hold hands right now. Hold hands. I want you to squeeze them tight. Squeeze them tight. And I'm going to leave you praying in the Holy Ghost. My prayer is simple. Lord, we're walking past the gate called beautiful. People want to behold the beauty. They don't think they can ever go in. I pray that these folks who are right here, who's been blood-bought, spirit-filled, preparing themselves to bear witness in the public square, let them not pass by the person who is hopeless and helpless, but let the testimony be that if they didn't stop to help me, I would be dead in hell. Transform this world and let it begin now. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Give Dr. Antipas Harris your love. Amen. Hallelujah. What a powerful message. What a powerful message for us. It's not the, it's not the ninth hour yet, literally. It's the, it's the sixth hour. So if you want to stay and pray in the sixth hour in preparation for what lies ahead for you, for all of us in the ninth hour, we're going to extend in prayer. Many of you that are here, NCU Day's guests, we're so glad you are with us these last 24 hours or so. Students, would you give it up for those who've been visiting us these last couple? Amen. Amen. If you are faculty and staff, I want to invite you, if you can stay, if you want to come up to the altar. Students, we've got, we've got faculty and staff ready to pray for you as we move into the sixth hour of prayer, preparing for the ninth hour to do ministry outside the walls of this church, this university. So let's seek God so we see his face, that we can see the faces of the hurting when we leave. Hallelujah. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. We love you, Lord. We praise you, God. We call upon you in this hour.